Hey guys, did you miss me last week? If you did, I hope that you went in and checked out an episode that you haven't heard. We do have over 35 now, so make sure to check those out. I didn't publish a new episode last week because I figured people would be traveling or tuning off for Thanksgiving, and I definitely do not want you to miss out on this very special episode. Today's episode is extra, extra special to me because I got to interview Milagro Sequera, who got to 48 in the world in singles, and she's from my home country, Venezuela. I definitely grew up watching her on TV and rooting for her, and I am so pleased to report that she did not let me down. You know how they say to never meet your idols because they will disappoint you, right? Well, this was definitely not the case. Milagros is so humble, so nice, and so open to share her life experiences from the pro tour to figuring out what to do after it with us. She had incredible advice for us, and you won't want to miss this one. I hope you had an incredible Thanksgiving. I'm so thankful to all of you for your passion for tennis and for tuning in, and thankful to our amazing guests for sharing their stories with us and making the Vita Tennis community so engaging. I know many times for us teaching tennis, we tend to work through the holidays, but hopefully you got to spend some quality time with those who are close to you. There is so much to be grateful for, especially for those of us who get to play a role in the best sport in the world, tennis. I think it was Tim Buick who said something like, we get to work in the toy department of life. And that is so true. We really are the lucky ones. So I am super thankful to all of you who listen to this podcast. I love seeing how the audience continues to grow and obviously super thankful to all our guests for sharing their expertise and personal stories with us. Remember, you can always visit our website at vitatennispodcast.com to learn more about the podcast and ways in which you can support it. Get ready to learn from one of the best out there only here at Vita Tennis. Enjoy! Hello, everybody, and welcome to Vita Tennis, the podcast for those of us who eat, sleep, breathe tennis. Today is a very special day because I get to talk with Milagro Sequera, who I grew up watching represent Venezuela on the Pro Tour. She reached a career high singles ranking of 48 and 29 in doubles with the WTA. She represented Venezuela into Olympic Games, was a Wimbledon mixed doubles semifinalist, and just had an incredible career playing on the tour that is just way too long to list. Milagros went to Virginia Tech for her undergrad studies and to San Diego State University to obtain her master's degree in hospitality and tourism management. She has been working at the USDA in different roles for over six years and currently serves as the senior manager for adult programs and special projects for USDA Southern out there in Atlanta. She is also part of the Outreach Committee for Athletes Soul, a nonprofit dedicated to supporting athletes as they transition and develop beyond sports. Whew. Welcome, Milagros, to Vita Tennis. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate your time. Of course. And I definitely appreciate yours. Obviously, I grew up watching you play. I didn't start playing tennis till I was about 11, but I still remember hearing your name everywhere. And I mean, I think it's safe to say you were the biggest name in Venezuela when I was growing up. So I'm excited to talk with you today. And I just kind of want to start kind of getting an idea of what kind of set you apart, because in a country like Venezuela, it's not the easiest thing in the world to become a professional tennis player. So what do you think propelled you to play professional tennis, despite coming from that type of background, how challenging it can be? Yeah, I mean, I think it's different things, right? So maybe most of you don't know, but we come from a very humble background. So my family and I literally lived in a tennis club where my mom and my dad took care of maintenance as well as the court booking. So pretty much tennis courts were my background and my playground. So I came out of school and went straight to a tennis club, to a, to a tennis court or a wall and play tennis pretty much all day. And coming from that particular background, just really enjoyed playing tennis at the beginning, really loved it. I've been with a tennis racket in my hands since I was five years old. So it was natural and probably safe to say that I spent the most time on the tennis court than any kid around my age. In, in Venezuela, uh, mostly because it was my playground. But yeah. I always had a great passion and love for tennis since the minute I, I started playing. And 
and honestly just loved being out there. My mom had to remember, I remember to this day, she had to like literally drag me out of ports and take me out of the wall that I was constantly playing with so that I could come and have lunch and dinner. And <laughs> and I think what separated me from other players, I just think was that was just wanting to be out there and loving the game. And I still do. I still love the game, uh, obviously now in a different way, but just absolutely love being out there and playing. Uh, and didn't really mind working hard for it you know as a, as a young athlete I was just very hungry to to be out there playing and learning and getting better and beating people and then as I start seeing that I was winning and I was getting better made me even more hungry and and when when it got to that point where it's like okay Millie let's look at some videos of some players and I started seeing Wimbledon and I'm like oh my gosh people can do this with tennis I can do ah. this with tennis so that kind of like that dream has started sort of like forming around 10 where I just wanted to be a professional player. Mind you, I had no idea what that even meant. I just wanted to lift the big trophies and be playing on Grand Slams and touch a grass court. My dream was to be able to see a grass court. I had never in Venezuela. Like, yeah. We barely have a clay court, let alone a grass court. It was like I, I, I couldn't fathom playing in a grass court. So that was one of the things that really just continued to keep me hungry to improve. Plus, the upside of all of that, too, was hoping to provide a better future for my family if I were to become successful on the tennis court, which safe to say that I feel like we've sort of achieved that in a way. But but yeah, just a lot of hunger, a lot of wanting and willing to to spend hours on court and really just wanting to learn and, and paying attention to the coaches. That was yeah. very important. Yeah, <laughs> that's good to hear. <laughs> did you did you ever consider playing college tennis when you were in high school and stuff, or did you go to high school? At what age did you become a tennis? So player? I moved to yeah, I moved to the United States when I was eleven. So I oh, moved okay. alone to a tennis academy when I was eleven. So I literally finished elementary school at home in Venezuela and then moved. And I was sort of doing like this crazy hybrid thing where I would take my books with me to the United States and then go back and do testing in Venezuela. And that's how my high school sort of finished. Weird way, because obviously I had the books for a full year and I would go home once every six months and I would study the two weeks before I got home. <laughs> Just <laughs> a cramp session. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so anyhow, so that's how my my schooling ended or I was able to get through it in a way. Mm. Um and when I was about 16, I had, you know, FIU recruiting me, some of the colleges coming out to me and say, hey, Millie, well, I was in Miami working with Patricio Ape. They're like, come on, come and play college. But I was like, no, I just want to play pro. I want to play pro. It wasn't what it was, what it is now, right? Collegiate tennis wasn't yeah. what it is now. So for me, I kept hearing from different coaches that if you go to college, then your professional career is over. You won't be able to make it. Um, from the tennis perspective. And then from the financial perspective was if you go to collegiate, uh, you won't have the financial help that that you're getting from the government or gotta, let alone if you'd receive a sponsor because you do well in juniors, you won't have that opportunity. You can't take right. money. You can't do anything of that. So I wanted it. I love studying. I love learning. Um, but I just wasn't the timing. Plus, I always had in the back of my mind that if I did well enough in tennis, I could always come back to school and finish later on. So yeah. whereas my body was only going to be able to be young for so long. Yeah. <laughs> so. so then you went on to play. At what age did you say you turned pro? I turned pro when I was, so I finished my, 1998 was when I finished my junior career. So that was my best junior year. And then 1999, I turned pro. So I was 18. I was going to be 19 that oh, year, okay. but I didn't turn pro early. I was playing some pro tournaments, but not really, not really taking the full money. Like they were still, we were still doing sort of like in case I go to college, I don't even know why, but that was part of like a last, if anything were to happen to me where I got injured or anything and I had to go to college, then that I would still have that option. Oh. But, but yeah, so, so we did that. I did that until, and then at 19, almost at 18, actually, um, after finishing my junior career, I decided to go full pro. And that's when I started playing a full competitive pro pro calendar. So got it. And so you guys moved to the US for you to train or was it due to other reasons? No, I moved. My family stayed home. So oh, you just, came by yourself. I came. But what academy did you go to? I went to Patricio Ape Tennis Academy. It was in Miami. Yeah, I, that's where Sabatini used to train. Fernando Gonzalez trained there. Coria. So 
it was a good group of players that had come from that academy. So it was a it was a great experience and and really certainly I learned a lot. Grew up overnight. An eleven year old, you show up in an airport and you pretty much have your luggage and you're like, oh yeah, now I gotta do this. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is for real. So obviously missed home a lot, but but my parents were supportive of my dream and and yeah, and here yeah, I am today. Great. So mm-hmm. you just went for it. I love that. And I went for it literally. Yeah. <laughs> You went for it at 11 years old. I mean, that's really commendable. I think that, I mean, at 11 years old, that's crazy. I, I came here when I was 16. And sometimes it's hard for me to believe that because same, I came by myself, right? And yeah, you leave everything you know to a completely different environment. And I think when you're young, I think it's just exciting to experience something new and all the possibilities and your dreams. I think as we age, we just become more afraid of taking chances like that. I think when you're young, it's a little bit easier. A hundred percent agree. Yeah. And so what was retiring from professional tennis like for you? I mean, you had an incredible career. Did you have any plans for what you wanted to do after you played? What was that like? So it was a big challenge because I struggled through most of my career with injuries and my career basically ended on an injury. So I had a shoulder surgery and then realized that I needed to have a second shoulder surgery, which I did. And then after my second shoulder surgery, after exactly 10 years on tour in 2009, I had to have a third shoulder surgery, which I say, I'm not not having a third shoulder surgery. Thank you very much. I'm going to call it a day and go get my degree and figure out what life is going to be moving forward. So very challenging, very, very, very difficult when you are known as a tennis player all your life and you base your identity on a ranking and on results and on a luggage that you carry around with you and and a tennis bag all your life. Then all of a sudden that came to a full stop pretty quickly and and literally just driving. I remember driving when the doctor said you need to have a third surgery. And I remember driving back home that day and I was just I, I just couldn't I couldn't believe it. I was like, I can't do this anymore. Another set of recovery that was going to be a nine month recovery this time when I had just gone through a nine month recovery. So I'm like, I can't do this. This is just way too much. So, yeah, it was very challenging to accept that I was no longer going to be a tennis player. It was a whole new, it brought up a lot of fear, brought up a lot of confusion, anger, resentment. I remember thinking tennis is like the worst boyfriend I've ever had because it just kept, you know, it kept leading me to good things and then boom, back to reality, the good things and then back to reality. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like it's just completely heartbroken and, and really took me a while to actually be able to even watch tennis. I was just so, I took it really, really hard. My husband, now at the time we were still together as a boyfriend and girlfriend, he was still traveling because he was still playing on the pro tour. And he used to tell me, come on, let's go, come to a tournament. And I'm like, I don't think I have it. I don't think I can face the questions of what are you doing? You know, what yeah. are you playing? So I didn't really have that inside to just put myself out there in that and be just vulnerable to everybody else, to what was happening to me. So very challenging. Thankfully, had huge support from him and um, my family in Venezuela and sort of like started figuring out. I was like, a, I took it like a day at a time in a way where I was like, okay, today I'm going to go sign up for my schooling. And then I'm going to start enrolling in classes and I'm going to learn to do the new things and sort of like started figuring ways out to sort of like come out of the hump and, and start seeing myself again and be valued, not just as a tennis player, but as a actual person and for who I was, not what I did. So that's certainly a big transition and hence why I worked and I'm super, I believe strongly in what Athlete Soul is doing because I think I didn't have it. I didn't have any of that. I didn't have an organization that could help me transition. Unfortunately, the WTA or the ITF didn't have that back then. Don't know what they're currently doing for their athletes, but back then we didn't have that. So it was pretty much a thank you very much. You're not longer playing professional. Go figure yourself out and good luck. So as you can imagine, I didn't really have a plan B because as athletes and high-performing athletes, you don't really want to think of a plan B because right. you, you want to be all in. Yeah. You want to be all in all the time. So 
that was it was very scary but i'm just really glad that i'm able to help athletes that are transitioning out now through athlete soul and whoever has you know where it comes to me and has a question or wants an advice or whatever i'm very happy to be there to support them through it because it is challenging and it will continue to be challenging so yeah yeah and what are some of those main challenges or i guess also, what's kind of the aid that Athlete Soul provides to these athletes? Is it a psychological help? Is it professional help? Is it all of it? Yeah, it's all of it. I think uh, so. We have programs that we focus on the athlete holistically. So we do a one-on-one mentoring. So we help the, the athlete transition from the sport with a mentor one-on-one, or we do group mentoring as well. So there are different ways in which we help them. We try to obviously provide them a network of peers that are going through similar experiences and then connect them with players or athletes that have gone through it that can actually help them through and provide them ideas and and different things like that but mostly it's we start with the holistic and psychology part of it just really helping them embrace the who you are not what you do as your personality as your identity mostly Mm -hmm. so because we're all identified ourselves by being the athlete and being the, the tennis player, the runner, the, the swimmer, rather than just me. It's mm-hmm. me and you, this is who I am. So that's the biggest challenge that we see is how, you know, the identity part of it. So I think, I mean, I did not play professionally, but I played in college. And even after college, I had a little bit of that. It's like you're done playing tennis competitively, at least. And now what? Right. And then now it's like, okay, your tennis just ends and it's something that you're so passionate about and you love. And then all of a sudden you're supposed to be done with it. So it's almost like a shock to the system. My story is I studied biochemistry. And so I went into research when I graduated, did that for four years. And tennis was always like in the back of my mind. I just miss it, miss it, miss it so much. And it's like you said, it's that identity as a player. And I couldn't say away. Obviously, I'm still in tennis now. Eventually, I went back into coaching. And then I was like, this is way more fun than being in a lab all day. So (laughs) I switched careers and now I've been in tennis for a while. But yeah, I mean, I think not just professional athletes go through that. I think college players definitely go through that. And maybe 100%. Yeah, no, 100%. And, and you know, that our programs are not, or the Athlete Soul programs are not just geared towards professional. They're geared towards athletes through, you know, collegiate players, any D1, D2, D3, because it is a struggle that you go if you are a high-performing athlete, regardless of where you fall in the spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, professional, you might have more resources. If you do so well professionally, you might have more resources to help you transition. Whereas yeah. if you don't become a top 20 player in the same tennis, you don't have those resources and then you need to really rely on organizations like Athlete Soul to be able to push you through and help you and guide you through your transition. So yeah, again, you said it, it's not just the pro pros, it's high school players, players that have done a sport for a long part of their lives. That's part of, it becomes your identity. So yeah. And we are lucky because we're in a lifetime sport. So even if we're not you know, competing at a high level, we could still compete. We could still play. We could still find people to play with. That's not a problem. But I can imagine somebody that doesn't play a lifetime sport. If you play, I don't know, soccer, track or whatever, and and you're at that same situation, I can imagine it's got to be probably more difficult. I I don't know. Do you think it is? Or No, I I do think so. I believe it. And I think it's also how how you transition out of sports, right? Because you have different type of transitioning you have the trauma like I feel like I had to absorb a trauma where I my career just stopped overnight because of you know an injury and then you have those that are not wanting to let go but in a way not really being awful in so there are different transitions stories that I think that's why it makes it even more powerful to have a network and to have people supporting and people around you really just guiding you and just sitting with you through it uh, until you figure out the best way forward because it is it is lonely it is lonely yeah. you know you don't really as you mentioned you don't really get to it's like you don't really get to move on from that stage smoothly yeah so it's not a smooth way to do it so you just need a support group to help you transition through it 
And so did you ever consider coaching as a career? I know we were just talking and you mentioned that you coached uh, a little bit at University of San Diego, but as a player, did you ever consider that your life after tennis maybe would be coaching or maybe after you retire? Was that the first thing you went into? So it was the first thing I went into. And I think it was the first thing I went into because I believe that was the only thing I knew how to do well without actually realizing that I had a full 10 or plus years of actually earning or getting skills that I really didn't know how to put in paper, or how to even put into practice to propel me to a different career. Yeah. So I thought it was just, I'm just going to do tennis because that's how I know. That's all I know. So however, I also found a great team in USD with Sherry and at that time, Sherry Steven, who was the head coach and Patricia Tarabini, who was the assistant coach. And we were able to grow the program and we were able to be very successful with that program. And I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed my time there. I wanted to continue to do that in the collegiate world. I just never had the opportunity to become a head coach or even apply for a head coach jobs because I, not long after that, I got pregnant with my first child. And then that became, you know, how it is coaching for women with children is a little bit more challenging with the traveling. So, and my husband was working and traveling at the same time. So that made it a little difficult, but, but yeah, no, did that with them for two years and had, like I said, had a great time. And then when we moved to Virginia, when my husband my husband became the assistant coach for Virginia Tech. Mind you, this is a funny story, but I have to say it. When, <laughs> when, I, when I stopped playing, I, I applied for assistant positions in many different schools. And I was never called back once. That's crazy. <laughs> Not once. But here's why, right? And this is one of the things that I kept telling myself, I need to get my degree. It's because I didn't have a degree behind me. So... Very little institutions will hire you as a as a head coach or assistant coach if you don't have a degree. And my goal was, okay, I'm going to get my degree to perhaps maybe one day go into college coaching. Oh, wow. So that was, that was the goal because I knew with my tennis experience, I had a chance. But if I had no college degree behind me, that was never going to happen. So interestingly enough, my husband did it the other way where his, his pathway to professional tennis was through college. So he came to college, he played at Auburn, he graduated, and then he moved on to play professional. So of course, he had just stopped playing. And within two months, he had like three collegiate offers. And I'm like, oh, that's not fair. <laughs> I've been for the past six months, I've been trying to get a job and nothing. And you got three offers within two weeks. So I think it's funny now, but in retrospect, it's like, wow, that really is, you know, I wish then I would have gone to college and before and then sort of transitioned that way. But I don't feel bad for it. It's just an experience and a learning opportunity for me and for those out there that are sort of like thinking, oh, my gosh, which one should I do? Just always have that in the back of your mind as well. Yeah. But, you know, when I after after I played, sorry, after I coached at USD, I started coaching privately when we moved to Virginia. So I did that for about four years where I was coaching. I mean, I coach from eight-year-old all the way to adults, three, five, three-year-old players. And I had a great time. I mean, I, I love being around people. I love teaching people. It was hard on my body. I had two under three. So I did that mostly because I wanted the break. And yeah. also because I love I love being around people and getting to know different people and, and helping them. And it was a lot of fun to see them get competitive too. So that was that was a big win for me. So And how was it to go from... Being in a high performance environment to now working with little kids and 3-0 players. How was that? Yeah, it was fun because it really just seeing them improved and high performance, the improvement is so little. Yeah. You know, like you Lower, spend yeah. so, so long to just see a small improvement. Whereas here, the improvement work could be like big and you're like, oh my God, he got it. And I would get more excited than them. Sometimes I'd be like, oh my God, you hit the ball over the net and it looks so smooth and it looks great. And they would look at me like, oh, okay, she's out there. But I'm like, no, it's exciting. But again, huge learning curve, but nothing that I didn't want to learn from, right? Or about. So I went yeah. in and when I was coaching, when I was teaching my eight-year-olds, I went in and found out about Rogi and what was all that about and how to do how to actually teach them. And, and I was more mostly focused on the motivational part of it and really helping them become, especially the young ones, help them become themselves with tennis, not just beat themselves up because they didn't do well or get frustrated because the shot didn't come up. It's like, let's find ways, let's problem solve. Let's, let me help you be a problem solver rather than someone who's just criticizing 
themselves, which I did. I was really, I'm really hard on myself still. So I wanted them to not be that, to just sort of like see it more like a, like a strategy, like a, like a game, right? Yeah. Because it is what it is. So. So what kind of pulled you away from coaching? Was it school or? Yeah, well, a couple of things, right? So I was also doing my undergrad while I was coaching and being a full-time mom. So I was a full-time student, full-time mom and doing sort of part-time coaching in Virginia. And my husband got offered a job in Orlando with the USDA National Player Development Team. So so when when we decided to move to Orlando, I sort of like had to get away from the courts and needed more of a nine to five job in a way had an opportunity come up with the professional department and the pro tennis department and really took it. And really from that point on, I've learned to love the game in a whole different way. Now I really enjoy seeing and growing, seeing and understanding ways in which we can grow the game and put more rackets into people's hands. So, Mm -hmm. so yeah, that's what got me out of that. And I mean, I still try to play sometimes but it's more the don't trying. lie <laughs> it's more the trying but not the playing I, it's more the trying I feel like you know every now every I'd say maybe twice a month I have I, people ask me and I want I willingly go and play and then I just I just come out in pain my shoulder's still not in good shape oh really still able. to oh, the yeah. day Oh, yeah. Yeah. I can play oh. one day for 30 minutes thinking, oh, this is great. And then I feel it for the rest the next three weeks. Oh. And it's just not fun. That part is not fun. Where you, yeah. you know, you've reached a point when you have to like actually make the court reservation and book your chiropractor. Yeah. <laughs> right, right around the same time. Right. So that, that, yeah, that's, that's not, not a good sign. Good, that's not a that's good sign. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And now you've been in different roles with the USDA. What what do you currently do? I know I read your title, but what is it that you do at USD Southern? What's your favorite part about your current role there? Yeah, so I do different things, right? So being in the special projects, I get to have different sort of like deep into different areas. But mostly I do adult tournaments and wheelchair tournament and wheelchair tennis. So with the adult tournaments, we just focus on working very closely with the committees to grow adult tournaments in the Southern section. Similar to what I did at National on the community side, I'm doing it here at Southern. And then just finding strategies, better ways to interact and to get more adult playing tennis on the tournament side. And then on the wheelchair tennis side, I really focus on growing wheelchair tennis across the Southern section and come up with initiatives to not only help put rackets and tennis chairs into kids that, that need wheelchair tennis, but also help coaches to learn how to provide wheelchair tennis programs in their area. So those are the biggest things that I do, but I'm also involved in some of the coaching education, some in professional tennis, like we did a pro circuit tournament here um, for the Southern section in which we created a series of events that will lead into wild cards for that 15K for men's and women's. We in training for surf tennis and all the software platforms that the USDA has created. So just very, I guess, involved in different ways, in different areas. So I think the the best part for me is just really figuring ways to to improve and grow the game. I think finding ways that tennis changed my life and finding ways I can help people have their lives changed through tennis, that gets me going every day. And I feel like like just now we're piloting a program and and I got a call from one of the ladies that is involved in the program and she was just in tears. It's like, oh my gosh, this girls are loving it and really enjoying it and so thankful. And I'm like, okay, that warms my heart. That makes me get up every morning to see how I can provide tennis and help people's life be changed by it. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you said that because even as a coach, I think it's so easy to forget the kind of impact that we have in people's lives because we're all in our own world, our own problems and trying to figure out the things that we're doing. And sometimes it's we don't remember. And I try to do that on the podcast is remind coaches of what a positive impact you're making in people's lives. Sometimes we just don't realize it. I've had people come up to me and and tell me like tennis is their favorite part of the day. It, it, playing tennis has changed their life because now they've made friends and now they have a social life. So yeah, we we have the ability to do that. And I think it is important to remember that so that we can do a better job and, and just be better and be friendlier to people and nicer, <laughs> right? hundred percent. And I think it just takes a minute, 
Yeah. It takes us, and all it takes is a step out of the crazy wheel that we are constantly just going, 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 just take a minute and step out of it from it for a second and just really look at the impact. And not only just really look at the influence you can have on everyone you come around to in a tennis court. I mean, because it could make or break their day. You know, mm-hmm. like you don't know what people are going through. You don't know how they're coming into your court. And this, and I'm speaking from littles all the way to adults. Like you just don't know. Yeah. You don't exactly. know what you don't know. And it's, it's, I know it's easier said than done. And probably people look at me like, yeah, but you're not on court 24 hours a day. And it's like, no, I'm not. But I was, I was that coach. I was that coach that worked 10 hours a day straight. And and it's like, oh, wow, like, I know it's hard. And by the last two hours, you just want to run away and not deal mm-hmm. with anyone. But it, you don't know who you're going to get on that day and, and just, you know, try to make the best out of it. And it's like at every job, right? You just mm-hmm. try to to do the best that you can. and But understand the influence that you can have yeah. on someone. And that's, that's something that you got to keep remembering. Right, because we're all always dealing with people, always talking with people. And the coaches have that. We have the power to say, come back and do it again or forget tennis and go home and say, this was the worst thing I ever did. So mm-hmm. how can you, what do you want them to remember you by? Like, do you want them to remember you by like, I had the best experience and I'm going to come back and play tennis forever or I hated it and I'm never going back there again. So I love that. And now you have, participated in the best tournaments in the world and you've ran tournaments for the USTA. What are some of the things that you think are key to running a really good tennis tournament? So I have two things and I always try to always lead with this in mind is player experience, volunteer experience, spectator experience. How can we make the best experience for them? And I know these are pretty I guess cliche and everybody talks about this, but I am a true believer that if we want people to come back, not only to play, but to see, they need to have a good experience. And then the other one is communication. People won't know what they don't know. If mm-hmm. you don't communicate what ter- what the expectations are, what are my expectations as a player? What am I going to receive? What are my expectations as an audience? What is out there for me to enjoy? then I think you missed a boat. And I mean, there's a great platform nowadays to provide sponsoring and all of that. But if you actually can keep the experience in mind for all of those that are being impacted by your event and then make sure that you communicate those well, I think those are key. Yeah, I agree. I think be mindful of the players too. I think Mm. even my husband plays a lot of tournaments. I don't play in any tournaments anymore. But even now I just see like many times communication is not very good he might not know what time he's supposed to play or if they're even having the tournament. Sometimes like they don't have enough people. And it's just, I think just constant communication, I think it's a basic (laughs) necessity, right? Uh, For running a good tournament, communicating what core, what time, Mm -hmm. all those things that maybe we know because we've been in the tennis world forever, but maybe recreational players don't know. So I think to me, that's like a really, really big thing. Is there anything that, I don't know, a coach taught you that really impacted you as a player or any advice that you have for coaches based on your experience as a player? Yeah. So I won't say anything earth shattering here, but it's been with me, I believe since I was 26 years old. So at 26, I started working with a different coach. His name is Larry William. Love the man. He actually started making me understand that I wasn't following a thing. So, but what I mean by that is I wasn't, I shouldn't be trying to follow a thing. I shouldn't be trying to follow a best performance in a tennis tournament. I shouldn't be trying to follow a best ranking. I needed to focus on trying to follow the best Millie that I could be and the best Milagros I could be. Mm. So instead of focusing, putting so much energy into things, just started focusing more on me and how I could improve, whether I won 6161 or I lost 6060. What did Millie do better today that she didn't do yesterday? Or how can Millie improve tomorrow what she didn't do as good today? So literally just changed my whole perspective. I'm very driven. And when I was young, I just wanted to get to that number and I just wanted to get to that amount of price money as crazy as it sounds but you know it was always something how can I can I get there how can I get to that place 
never really looked inside and did that introspective and really started seeing myself as I'm the key player. I'm not just the instrument. Whereas mm-hmm. before I just saw myself as the instrument rather than the key player, if that makes sense. Yeah. So on a more personal hundred percent personal level, how can you be a better person? The whole thing, really. Yeah. The whole thing, because not just a better person, but how can I start thinking of myself more as a strategy strategically as a person, as a coach, as a as my body, what was I putting into my body? What was I doing on a daily basis? So it just made me more professional just by really looking at myself. Mm. Not, you know, not looking and going for a ranking, but really, okay, am I doing enough, really? Can yeah. I do more, really? Like, is this what's best for me? Or am I just thinking that it's best for me? I'm hurt and I'm in pain. Should I be playing, really? Like, yeah. is that, you know, like making decisions based on the longer run and the bigger picture rather than the immediate ranking or the immediate price money. And, and that, that really helped me a lot. Unfortunately, I got that advice when I was really pretty much at the end of my career. I wish I would have received that when I was younger. And that's one of the things that I've tried to stay that I try to keep and share with play current players or young kids or parents of those kids that are wanting, Oh, Millie, what do you think? And I'm like, well, you got to think of a long run. You can't play mini tennis right now. You got to, you got to think of the whole trajectory of your player, not just a level three or a level four or at the ITF next week. And I know it's really hard, but but that that really changed pretty much my life and how I see myself now as well. Yeah, I think that's such great advice, especially for parents, I think, to hear, because I think parents can really impact that that part in their kids. And I feel like the focus is always so much on the result, especially at a very young age, like playing 12s, playing 14s. There's so much focus on the result on did you win? Did you lose? What's your ranking? What's your UTR now? And even up to later in high school, there's so much stress around UTR because I think kids right now, they struggle so much with that whole mentality of what's my UTR? I got to get it up. I got to you know, improve my UTR so that college coaches are looking at me. It's, I think it's really stressful. So I think that's really solid advice. Yeah. Thank you. I, I do. I do believe that. I believe sometimes you have to lose doing the right things. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily a win that's going to get you to be the number one player in the world. It's understanding what are the things that you need to improve or your kid needs to improve as a player and how can he apply it regardless of what the, result, the results are in the end. Yeah. So. It just kind of popped in my head. Did you notice any main differences in how the training was in Venezuela and how the training was in the U.S. Uh, Was it more just being around really good players and and getting to experience that? Or was it the the actual coaching that was just different? I think both. So I was in Venezuela and I was the number one player in Venezuela. And I thought I was the best it or the next best thing. And, And then I came the states and they're like ah not so much right so it was like a huge (laughs) huge yeah it was a huge very humbling moment I I would say I spent more time on court here in the United States Uh, I was in an academy so therefore back then it was nine to twelve or nine to nine to eleven and then again two to five so I was pretty much on court playing hitting balls all day Monday through Saturday wow so volume was a big change Technically, big change as well. Obviously, in Venezuela, they teach you some things. And then you, from that point on, at least my coach taught me some things. And then from that point on, that was his repertoire. So I needed more learning. And then, you know, Venezuela, they teach you a lot how to read the game, how to play the game. The United States is more of a attacking kind of like game base. I didn't have that. I was more of the feel and touch and the angles and all of that. So it was a certainly a change for me. And I had to like add to my, in a way, to my toolbox, different things and figure out how it all played together um, as I got older. So so that was a little bit of a, of a challenge. But the coaching 
the coaching was different. Again, I was with a Latin coach in the United States. So he had seen different parts of tennis and he was not so geared towards me being an attacker, understanding my background and where and how my tennis was. After I moved to San Diego that I started working with Larry, who was a, an American coach and had seen American, you know, pretty much had developed American players. Then my game style changed. Then I became more aggressive. Then he pushed me to kind of like come out of my comfort zone in that way. But it was extraordinary coaching all along. So, and yeah, like I said, in Venezuela, I moved when I, when I was there, I sort of like, I had tapped, I guess, all the, all that I could with my coach then, and then moved here and then just really kind of like propel me to a different level. Yeah. Okay. And now looking back on the way that you trained, the hours you put in, the kind of training that you did. Now looking back, is there anything regarding your shoulder in particular? I'm very curious about that. If there's anything that pops in your head, like I should have not been doing that. I should have been doing this. Anything that would have maybe prevented or not made your shoulder get to the point that it got to. Yeah, I mean, I think in hindsight, it's a lot clearer, right? So I would say certainly the hours, the volume, which is a tricky one, but certainly volume, it's some of the biggest things that pops in my head right now as to why I was so injury prone. And then not being specific enough with my training, meaning my fitness training, right? I was, uh, we were very basic in some of the things. And if I needed, my body needs X and I was doing Y because everyone else needed Y. So I guess that part is a little bit, I wish I could have had the resources to have done that, but I didn't. But I would say mostly is volume and really the ability to actually say, no, I, I, I don't, it hurts and I need, I need a break. Mm. I wish I could have done that more. I didn't do that enough where I just, I thought I need to be stronger. I don't need to be weak. I need to push through it. And the end of the day, I was the one who got the, the hard part of it. So, yeah, I too have a bad shoulder, by the way. So yeah. that's a bit of a selfish question. <laughs> Thinking too, you know, we I didn't grow up playing rogi. So I always grew up playing up here all the time and all yeah. the balls were high bouncing. So I've often wondered if I've, and I mean, I'm sure there's research there to prove it. I know there is, that if I had started playing with rogi, you know, with my red, with my orange, my my greens, then my shoulder would have held that better. That's really interesting. Yeah, I I definitely see a lot more shoulder injuries in girls, in particular, and sometimes really scary when they're really young. Like I'm talking like 11, 12. At that age, you should not be having this problem this early on. That definitely means overtraining. And I think in tennis. I just see because my husband was a baseball player. So, mm-hmm. and, now, and now I've seen how baseball trains, how other sports train. I've looked into that. And I do think that in tennis, overtraining is definitely a thing. There's, it's just too much. And even coming from the time when I was coaching college and seeing how other schools train, how much they train. Yeah, it's just it's almost abusive to the body. And I think it's really hard to remember that it's not quantity, it's quality. And I'm a really big proponent for that is even if you're just going to do an hour, make it the best hour that you can. You don't have to train four, six, eight hours a day to really get good at tennis. So anyway, that's something that I'm kind of passionate about because I, I see it so much, especially in girls, is this shoulder thing. You know? Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I agree. I think perhaps it's a cultural thing where yeah. we just think, oh, you got to spend more time out there. And the more you spend, the better you'll get rather than let's just do a short but good one. And honestly, I towards the end of my career, that was pretty much me. It was I was one hour, one and a half hours and I was out of there. And but it's like one and a half hours where I would go home and I'd be like, I'm dead. I'm exhausted. Yeah. But and and as you get, but obviously I get older, you get older, right? So you just get smarter. You sort of try to balance your body a little bit better. And I just, I encourage parents to do that. I encourage parents to look at the research, to just see what's best, not so much the quantity, not so much, not so much, you know, the more hours she spends out there, the the more chances she has to win. Just, just, just look, do the research. There's so many resources that we can use Mm -hmm. to make guided decisions. 
based on our kids and what we want for them out there. So same for the coaches. Like, I, I don't think, I mean, knowledge is power. The more you know, the more you can make base your trainings and your decisions on that. So, Right. So you've played literal Grand Slams, but what has been the Grand Slam moment of your career? It can be your playing career or even your professional career after playing tennis. What has been the Grand Slam moment and the double bagel moment? <laughs> oh, gosh. So the Grand <laughs> Slam moment, a few of them pop in my head, but I will just go with the first one that popped walking the opening ceremony at the Sydney Olympic Games in 2000. Yeah. That was amazing. I still to this day remember the chills, remember the crowd, remember the whole thing. And I've never had the privilege and I never will have the privilege to earn a gold medal in an Olympic Games, but that was pretty out there. That was amazing. Yeah. I bet I get the chills just watching on TV. So I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, it was just that the whole stadium. I mean, it's just, you know, just understanding too that you're walking into a stadium with the best athletes in the world and yeah. you're part of that. And then you have hundreds of thousands of people just looking and cheering for every one of us. It's it just nothing. I've, yeah, I don't, I don't think that will. I will ever experience that again. I don't think so. I will, but I don't, I don't know what sport I would be able to compete. In. <laughs> Maybe no, on the I, senior games. I don't know. <laughs> that's got to be so special. And funny enough, I don't know if you follow Patrick Maratoglu. He just said, I probably mispronounced his name, by the way, but he just had posted something about that, about how playing in the Olympics wasn't really too important for professional tennis. And he got a lot of backlash for that. All the tennis players came out and they're like, you're not, that's not true. <laughs> like we absolutely love it. <laughs> yes. And I would say that was my biggest inspiration. You know, like when I played Pan American games and uh, that was for me, the goal was to get there. And obviously representing my country was a huge thing. And I absolutely love playing with the flag on my shoulders But getting to the Olympics, I mean, that's that for me was, yeah, huge, yeah. huge, huge, huge. So yeah. oh, I can't imagine. All right. What about a double bagel moment? Not literally a double bagel, but just something that felt like uh, <laughs> this was almost a double bagel. So <laughs> losing six love, six one in like, I would say probably 40 minutes at a, in the third round of Wimbledon against Serena in the stadium oh, court. Wow. That was uh, so embarrassing. And I remember, I don't remember anything, actually. There's so much that happened that moment that I don't remember it, which is so annoying because I want to go back and remember what happened. <laughs> why did I, why was it so quick? Yeah. Uh, but Serena happened. She she happened. She just came out and guns are blazing and just really, <laughs> literally just, just, yeah, just didn't give me a chance. So, oh my so God. yeah, so that was my... It was very embarrassing because I was in the stadium court. It was my first time in the stadium court, Wimbledon. And yeah, first and last. So. Oh, my goodness. Hey, <laughs> at least uh, it was playing Serena, who's the best player in history. <laughs> so. Thank goodness there was the internet was just, I guess, social media was just starting back then. So I'm glad that I wasn't trending. <laughs> yeah. In a oh way. No, I don't think anybody probably would have thought anything of it just because. I know. She, I'm sure Serena. she she was the favorite right she was oh 100 <laughs> i i was i had noted i don't have i didn't have a chance i was just really hoping to get three four games i got one and i was really my goal was to stay on the court a lot longer than 35 minutes that's for sure <laughs> yeah yeah what is it like to play serena williams i mean that's insane <laughs> it is it's insane and i can tell you I played her at the French. So I just played her at the French and then I played her again at Wimbledon. And the French was a lot more fun for me. <laughs> but but yeah, it was it was very intimidating. She is a presence. Obviously, she's a name. So just seeing that name was was in your draw and knowing that I had to play her was was a, a lot. But but being on the same court as her, I mean, it's it, it was certainly very intimidating. I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed both times that I played against her, even though the second one, I don't remember as much, but the first one I did. And, and, you know, she's just such a great player. I mean, yeah, I get to say that I've played one of the best of all times, you know, and, yeah. and, and I, I experience her power. I experience her, you know, her gruelings come on and in front of my face and, <laughs> and yeah, I cherish that. I, I, she taught me a lot. I mean, one of the things that I admire from her all along is that she just, 
She doesn't take no for an answer. And you can see it. I, she's just not going to give up easy yeah. at all. And I love that. I love that about her. And I love her feistiness. And I loved what she represents as yeah. a woman and as a mom and as everything. So I think it was a, it was a great moment for me. And I, I'm really glad I had that chance because not very many people have those chances. So Yeah, that's amazing. And are you a fan of watching tennis at this point? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I watch a lot of tennis. Yeah, we watch a lot of tennis. My husband, as I mentioned, he's still involved in coaching at the professional level, but I enjoy watching. I enjoy watching the ladies, the men. It's always fun for me to see the next generation. It's always nice to to see who's coming up and 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 seeing the the little ones actually, you know, making some breakthroughs and then also little ones anymore staying on top as well. So mm-hmm. that's one of the biggest things that I'm taking. It's like, wow, people are just they're still 30 something and they're still out there playing and doing well. And oh. it's, it's you know. Yeah. It's crazy. I think I always I always talk about this with my friends because I feel that, you know, some of those players like Novak or even Serena, right? It's like, and, and they showed this in, in the show Breaking Point because I feel like players just kind of go in already thinking that they're going to lose, like that they, they don't have a chance. And I think that, I don't know, maybe that plays a role in why they continue to win and and be at the top it's like just, people just don't believe that they can do it yeah I mean I think it does for some of the players but I think your top players I mean they don't like yeah I, I would say you get to a point I, I would assume that you get to a point where you just don't really even think that you go out there and you just like oh she's another player and I'm gonna go for it and I'm gonna make it the best out of it for me it was just overwhelming on both situations because I had never played in a stadium court either at the French or at Wimbledon. Yeah. And that for me was an overwhelming situation anyways. Mm. Plus then you add the name to it and then, oh my gosh, right. I was just thinking of the worst case scenario. I really hope this doesn't happen. Right. <laughs> Rather than thinking I'm moving forward. And, and, and to be fair, I just, I was just more humbled by the whole moment than, than in the whole experience than than really thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I'm not going to beat her ever. I was just trying to to make a good game for the fans. And yeah, you you just think there's a lot, there's a lot. And I, I just admire, extremely admire those players that do so well on those moments because it takes, takes a whole nother level of, of everything, mindfulness, mental toughness, the whole thing. So, yeah. Ah, that's amazing. I'm so glad that we, we talked about the Serena moment. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. And again, thank you so much for talking with me today. I so enjoyed this and wish you all the best at USDA and and with working with athletes transitioning out of playing professionally or, you know, college or whatever it is. <laughs> High performance athletes. Yeah. High performance athletes. There we go. Of sports, yeah. No, thank you for your time, Jennifer. I really appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Vita Tennis. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with others on social media. And if you want to let me know, you can tag me and I will definitely repost it. The handle is Vita Tennis Podcast and we're on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You can also email me at vitatennispodcast at gmail.com if you'd like. I hope you have an amazing week and see you next time for another amazing episode of Vita Tennis.